something about um, like 100% data all the way. Like I think this is a pitfall that people don't think about too much, um, which is you do that and you start to take out the human side of it in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So you start using data so much that you forget to solve for your customer, mm -hmm. right? Activation rates and conversion rates and lifetime value and all these things, like they're not customers. Those aren't people, you know what I mean? Hey, welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. This is Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. And this is Matt, and I'm a growth engineer at HubSpot. And this is Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. So today, we're gonna depart from our usual sort of in the weeds technical approach to episodes, and we're gonna do a little bit more of a retrospective on 2015 and some of the big takeaways that we had from the year. Uh, some things that surprised us, some experiments that we ran, and even things related to culture and the way that we work. Uh, for Jeff and I, this was our first year at HubSpot. Actually, at the time of recording this, I just passed my one-year anniversary. Yeah, and I started uh, in April of 2015, so I'm probably, I got a couple more months to go. Yeah. I'm trying to do the math in my head, and I can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and Matt, you're Matt's approaching uh, two, years. two years. Yeah. So so this is all still. Uh, this company is relatively new to us, and and we've had a lot of uh, really interesting new experiences as a result of that. Uh, that we kind of wanted to just uh, go over and and give some thoughts on. So, uh, guys, what are what are some things that stood out to you from this year? Was it a good year? Was it uh, the worst year of your life? How how <laughs> how are we looking? <laughs> Yeah, so I think like first and foremost, um, something that really stood out to me was um, we, Matt and I, um, we now work on the same team. Um, I don't know if we had touched on that before, but we, um, we work together every day. And one thing that we're trying to do with a couple of other colleagues is bring this experimentation process to um, people that we work near that aren't necessarily doing it. So other, you know, other people working on other apps and things. And we, we have like a loose experimentation culture here at HubSpot. Some places are much more oriented with that and some places don't really do it at all. And what we're trying to do is formalize it. What I like is that um, people seem to be very open to it, but it's very easy to get people confused. Like the concepts take, like trying to teach by being there with them is kind of like a necessary thing. You, you know, you can talk about stuff, you can listen to podcasts, you can uh, read material, but you know, bringing the, the process to a kind of a larger organization um, takes a lot of work and it's, it's complicated and there's a lot of things you don't think about. Um, and you also have to, kind of design the UX of the UX tools, mm. you know? Like you have to be thinking about like what internally, like just as important as the external apps where you need, you have a user experience and you want your tools to be um, fundamentally um, easy to use, but also powerful. You know, we have to do the same thing for the tools that we're trying to develop and the, and the processes and concepts that we're trying to develop, like ways in which we can get 
um, other people to digest and understand the processes that we're going through without a lot of confusion and a lot of handholding, you know? Yeah. So and also just teaching people how to do things. I highly recommend it, like, because, like, even just explain to your parents some of this stuff, because just the process of explaining the most basic rudimentary things of how this process works and how you run experiments and what's involved, you're going to, like, better organize the thoughts of it yourself, and you're going to learn through teaching. Mm. So I found that to be super helpful. And, like, mm -hmm. some of the basic questions that people have been asking me, I realized, like, oh, wow, you know, I actually never thought of that. I'm glad that I, like, asked you or talked to you about this stuff, because... You know, you just don't know what you don't know. Yeah, yeah. Matt did a uh, Matt did a presentation. Uh, we have what's called a Tech Talk once a week here at HubSpot, and uh, Matt pulled together um, a really good one about um, how to run experiments internally, like with our infrastructure. Um, and people jumped all over him after that, which was great. Um, some people actually, what's great about that too is you had some people coming out of the weeds who like knew way more than we did, <laughs> who don't really do it. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, and then suddenly they come out with this information, and you're like, yo, like, why aren't you doing this now, oh, yeah. you know? I guess some messages from one of our, our, one of our principal engineers, actually, who, as it turns out, is like a genius with statistical theory and all the different theories of Bayesian statistics and how it fits into experimentation and graded populations and that kind of thing. And he just started throwing technical math terms at me that I'd never seen before. And I was like, oh, God, I, I am regretting, like, getting up in front of everyone and, yeah. like, being like the person talking being about the, this now. Being the first penguin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is actually really interesting though because I, regardless of your team size or how old mm -hmm. your team is or whatever, like getting your team to adopt an experimentation framework is a difficult thing to do and it's something that a lot, a lot of people experience, whether it be in a startup or in a mature, even though we like to call ourselves a startup. Now we're a scale up technically, actually. Yeah. We finally changed that. Um, that sounds made up. Is that a thing? That is actually a thing. Why are yeah. you just a business? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's something that a lot of businesses and individuals run into. So as you guys have been trying to broaden the scope of experimentation at HubSpot and then bring new depths to the way that we experiment, have you guys run across any tips, like things that you have mm. really seen work well in terms of like getting this, fr taking an experimentation framework and actually getting it to work in a team? Consistency mm -hmm. is huge. Don't, like you gotta figure out, if you're teaching things to people and then you change them, um, it's natural for things to be in flux um, as you're developing a process, but that you have to be able to stay ahead of that curve, right. you know what I mean? We waited a very long time actually before we like started talking to other people about this stuff to make sure that we had it right yeah. and, that, like, and that it wasn't continuously evolving in radical ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tough to follow that. There's like a good example of, and this, this isn't UX process, but this is just a framework that I, I followed for a while that I had a lot of trouble with um, was, and it seems to have matured, but I need to get back to it, is the Ember JS framework um, where that was, I started at the very beginning, like I heard it was up and coming, got a lot of buzz online, and they, as they were going from version, you know, 0 0.8 to like version 1.5, they might be on version 2 at this point, I'm not sure. But either way, what happened was the documentation was changing very quickly. And not only that, but what was, how it worked internally was changing very quickly. And I would build something and it wouldn't work and I would go to look things up and I couldn't figure it out because things had already changed, you know? And then you ask questions and it's like, well, read the manual, like, we would, you know, the RTFM, like, don't. Uh. So, like, that was a, a failed um, example of something that, it's like things that were moving so fast that 
regular people who weren't like in the room they like they couldn't follow right mm -hmm. we have the advantage of doing that on a small scale at hubspot but the minute that you want to give it to teams that we don't work with somebody maybe even not in the same building um that is when you need to be much more deliberate about like going like developing the process and then making it public immediately and not just changing things and then forgetting like it's always got to be like documentation first and yeah. like you know communication is the most important thing ever no matter what you do because other teams are going to start depending on it it's really interesting too like i think that our internal adoption of running experiments on the product team here is really representative of how other companies would want to adopt experiments because we have a lot of different products here at HubSpot just by nature of what our application is. Like there's, uh, I don't even know how many apps are in our product, but there's a lot. Like there's a lot of like miniature apps and each app has its own team and they're treating their own app as if it's like their own business that they're trying to grow. And the cool thing about this is that maybe an app like email or contacts that has mass adoption within our user base, has a lot of quantitative volume behind it to run experiments. And then other apps that are new or are maybe add-ons or something like that don't have as much traffic. And so the types of experiments that they can run and the way that we actually need to even explain what experiments are actually changes quite a bit, mm. right? That's, that's something I've learned is like, the way that you need to approach explaining experiment process uh, to someone who has never heard about this stuff before is very different based on how much traffic they have to work with. Mm -hmm. So, like, if someone has, let's say, a, a few thousand weekly active users, um, I'm going to just tell them, like, hey, you need to make sure that you don't run overlapping experiments, like you're not doing factorial experiments, which would be, let's say, we have three A-B split tests running on top of each other, right? And each test has two variations, a control and a variation. Uh, that actually means that you're going to have two times two times two, which is six potential experiences that users could have that you need to account for in your analysis. And that even compounds on itself if you add more variations onto those experiments. Two, two times two times two is not six. That's two plus two plus two. Ah, I am, I am excellent at math. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that That's you're great. the one that pointed that no, out. It's, you know what's awesome is I got to redeem myself for uh -huh. not being able to subtract like whatever April is from like last year in order to find the number of months I've been here. <laughs> And so I'm like, ah, but I can do multiplication in my head. <laughs> I still can't. I still don't know. what. I don't actually Can, can we just, like, have another Christmas right now and just, like, go back to be on holidays? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm not ready to be back yet. <laughs> uh, so anyway, like, the, the basic uh, idea of, like, a factorial is that you're, you're creating uh, exponentially more experiences that a user can have, and then you have to account for that in your analysis. And what that means, if you don't have the traffic to scale with those experiences that you're creating, you're going to have analysis hell and you're not going to be able to like pull everything apart and you're just not going to have the traffic to hit the significance numbers that you want. Um, and so I just tell them you can't do that. But like mm -hmm. then other teams that have even like half a million users, I'm like, yep, you can do this stuff. Here's how you should do it. You can opt like in my, in my talk, I said, Hey, we're not going to optimize for things like button color. We're not going to optimize for uh, messaging and, and microcopy and stuff like that because we don't have the quantitative traffic to do stuff like that for the most part. But we do have some teams that have millions of users and sometimes like that is something that you want to do. It's certainly not the first thing that you usually want to do, but sometimes you know you get to a point where, hey, everything's well oiled. Like let's try and like get every micro optimization that we can out of this. And I said to them, you know what, you can do this kind of stuff.
Mm-hmm. So it's like the way that you explain things and the way that the process even works changes radically with like how much traffic volume you have. Yeah. So you find yourself when you're explaining these experiments to different teams, depending on how much traffic they have, the mm-hmm. way that you explain it is different. And one of the main things that comes out of that is for a team with a smaller amount of traffic. And when we say traffic, we're talking about users because yep. Hub- the HubSpot product is so big that it's split up into multiple different products and mm-hmm. it has... Uh, Each product has a different amount of users. So some products, as Matt mentioned, have hundreds of thousands or millions or whatever users, and others will have several thousand. Um, So the the way that they run those experiments will be different. And Mm -hmm. for the the teams with much smaller user bases, like it's like make sure that you're running experiments, but don't overlap the experiments on top of each other where they're like running multiple different variations and experiments in one place. And for the teams that have much more traffic volume, they can do things that are a little bit more intense Mm -hmm. and, and really test multiple things at one time, which is something that we were talking about earlier today is like, Depending on your traffic volume, the way that you can leverage your traffic, if you if you're willing to set up like a very very complex experiment, is like you can you can take the certain traffic volume that you have and almost multiply it by running multiple different experiments at the same time that don't affect each other. Exactly, and that's called namespacing, which is a really smart thing to do. Like if you only have a thousand users coming in the top of your funnel a week you only have so much room to run experiments. You can probably only run one experiment at a time, like depending on what types of experiments you're running. But if the first experiment is optimizing for conversion rate between funnel steps, and then the second experiment is optimizing for how many viral invitations come out of users who make it through the funnel, and then you also create a namespace for experiments that uh, maybe try to improve the retention or enroll these users in a different email workflow or something like that, those radically different subsets of the types of things that you're trying to optimize for allow you to run overlapping experiments. But if you're running two experiments on that same uh, top of the funnel conversion rate uh, at the same time overlapping on one another, you're gonna create that factorial effect. And you don't wanna do that unless you have like a crap ton of traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something that's nice too. Um, when I think about namespacing, uh, one of the safest ways to do it is um, like new users versus retaining users, mm-hmm. right? So new users are easy to filter out and you can run experiments like onboarding experiments or some sort of first time setup or like first seven day type experiments with them. But then you've got retaining users who've been around for a long time and you can just draw a line in the sand, you know, like the date that they signed up or like um, how long they've been a user or perhaps like just by their sort of ID that you've given them as a user. Um, and then you can run um, kind of because they've gone through that process already and they're established as a user, you're not influencing that behavior. You're not trying to figure out, are they sticking around, right? So that's like so different. So what you're trying to do is maybe improve the usage of like individual apps or like, you know, try to improve their workflow. Like you notice that, um, I don't know, like certain tools don't work as well when they're in one place, but you want to move it somewhere else. But what you do is don't show it to those new users, you yep. just show it to those older users. And that's a that's a pretty easy one to do if you want to run um, experiments in different places. Um, things that get a little hairy are like, you're trying to run a, a sign-up experiment where you're testing different sign-up flows to see like which has the, the smallest drop-off. But then you're running a, an experiment which is like onboarding pages, right? Because those are kind of related to each other. How people, um, how people act when they go through one and the other, or mm-hmm. one versus the other, like they all kind of influence each other. So those are those are in the same domain, and yeah. you can't you can't really run overlapping 
experiments. That's why you just need to be that. smart about it so that like your namespacing, not by like what your product is and the different pages. Instead, you're namespacing by what is the metric that you're going to be analyzing. Right. Okay, so if you're going to be analyzing how many users did I activate out of like the users that signed up, well, your immediate first time user experience in your onboarding flow is going to affect that as would the users who are actually signing up. Right. So you can't run those at the same time. However, you could run, uh, you could namespace things based on uh, that sign up conversion and then maybe like week one retention because those are just radically different. Right, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, a lot of it comes down to time period. You're noticing like there's some right. themes. It's like the, t the life cycle of the user and the time that they've spent in the app kind of is going to define what your namespaces are and like where you draw those lines. Yeah. Um, or it has been for us anyway. Um, perhaps I know there will be other versions of that for other people, um, but for us specifically, that's the one that has worked the best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, that's cool. Uh, the you guys like your learnings for for how you're introducing this stuff to your team and like mm -hmm. this new level of experiments that you're running in the software is really awesome and it actually jives really well with some of the learnings that I've had. Um, oh, do tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's two. There's two big learnings I think that are kind of related to, to what we're discussing right now. Uh, the first of which I actually touched on in our Design Machines episode, it was a couple episodes ago, and that's the importance and effectiveness of true data-driven design teams. Um, previously, like previous to working at HubSpot, uh, I, I had always worked in, you know, in some form of UX or data-driven design or whatever, um, but I had not seen like how truly effective it was. And um, be, that, that was primarily because my team and myself included didn't have the, the strong understanding of data collection and analysis and experiment leverage uh, that we do here at this company. Um, so I didn't see completely how that data could, could go to work for us. And in a lot of cases, we were running like bad experiments where we may have been getting false positives or we were testing something where it's like, why are we even testing this? Um, now, as, as a part of a, a truly data-driven team where we have the, the, the internal expertise and resources to actually run these experiments and get actionable insights out of them, I've seen how powerful this stuff really is and how it's just completely revolutionized the way that I design and how anybody that's designing in an uninformed way based off of pure, pure and I say pure, intuition or opinion or, or things that are completely subjective and they're not introducing objectivity in, into their design, yeah. they are essentially becoming a dying breed. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the stuff that, that we're doing here is probably a little bit further ahead of, of what maybe even the, the, the rest of our industry is doing. That's not like patting us on the back. I'm just recognizing <laughs> that like, yeah, like, like other, like it's, it's, it's there's, there's a is. curve. Yeah, but there's a curve where like, you know, other other people are gonna have to like catch up and everything. And we're a very different business, of course, and many other businesses Absolutely. out there. So inherently, we'll yeah. do different things. Um, but but I I think that what we're going to see like progressively is that the tools that allow us to run experiments are going to get much more commonplace and much easier to use. And this idea of uh, subjectivity and design is going to increasingly disappear. Um, and that's something that I think is, is going to become a core understanding uh, of what design is. I recently published an article that we actually circulated around the company, thanks to Matt, um, <laughs> called Design is Not Art. And one of the core things to me was that art is 
uh, subjective and design is objective. And if you're really doing it right, I think that that's, that's a complete distinction. Um, so I have seen, yeah, the importance and effectiveness of, of data-driven teams when, when conducted appropriately, I think is huge. Uh, some big things that have come out of that to me are, are, is not just like running the right experiments, like making sure that you're running A-B split tests or multivariate tests or whatever and, and optimizing for a specific metric and, and all of that stuff, but it's also ensuring that you're um, not running the wrong experiments and that you're running experiments against like your the 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 other experiments that you're running to ensure that you're actually getting back good data so yeah um, a like new a, like aas like, like yeah it's like an aa test which is uh you think of an a b test like in in one very you have one variation which is like one design and then you have another variation which is a completely different design uh, and then you would see which one wins, but you could potentially worry about getting a false positive where just like by total chance, um, variation A happens to win, but it was actually not the design that did it, it was just luck, right? Um, so Matt has a great way to test against that, which is through something called a placebo, a placebo test or placebo experiment, mm -hmm. which basically uh, ensures that you run the experiment long enough to hit true statistical significance and, and make sure that you're not calling a winner too early. But another great way, the, the way that Jeff just mentioned, is through an AA test, which is where you take the same exact design and run th that as the two variations to see um, which one of those will win. Uh, and that's something that we, earlier we were talking today about like button color tests. And I was saying like, I'll bet that, it, you know, I just, I, the more that I, that I get into, to, you know, the, the data driven design that we're doing, the more that I'm seeing like, how a lot of the tests that are being run, especially across the web right now, are just completely nonsensical. I'd say if you have, just to like throw a hard line in the sand, just so people know when you do run button color tests and when you don't, if you have low hanging fruit that you can like even begin to think of like, oh yeah, like we could just change this thing and things might get a lot better, then don't even think about running button color tests. Yeah. And also if you have probably sub a million active users, don't think about doing it either. Yeah. Yeah, it's just need, not worth it. We may have touched on this before, but the number that you need to run a statistically significant test for button color is atrociously high. Yeah. yeah. And that's just like, a, I, that's probably, it's not even a sub-million. I'm just throwing that out yeah. there. Just like, <laughs> don't even consider doing we it. We say this it so much that we should get like t-shirts that just say this <laughs> for us. I, I feel like I've said this, like there's a learning. I want to learn how many times I've said this in 2015. <laughs> like between, I guess all of us, like what is our number of like, uh, oh, that reminds me of the button color experiment. Right? <laughs> probably, probably past a hundred yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. As, as another learning, though, to to kind of go along with the importance and effectiveness of data-driven teams, I've also learned the importance and sometimes effectiveness of trusting your gut when necessary right. and not getting buried in the weeds of the data. Understanding when when it's right to to be pulling data on something. And, and when it's right to put, put the time into that and, and be very calculated about it. And also when uh, it's not right to do that because it's going to completely slow down your process and there are things that, that you, can, uh, in, you can interpret the right decision through, through a different method. So I think that the key with those is that you want to ensure that whenever you're collecting data or whatever it is that you're, you're using to inform your decisions, and, and the important piece here is that your decisions, no matter what, should always be informed 
uh, and you should never think of yourself as like an expert that can just create a, an, a magnificent design on your own. That's something that just doesn't exist. Uh, but what, uh, knowing when to run the experiment versus when to trust your gut, I think that no matter what, you need to ensure that you're collecting insightful and actionable quantitative and qualitative data to make your decisions based off of. And if you cannot reliably collect and in, in actionable and insightful data for the decision that you're going to be making, then you need to look to other ways to, to appropriately make that decision. And that's something that's like not really popular in our industry right now because uh, for so long, everything was just completely subjective. So then when, when data started to introduce a lot of objectivity into it, it was like 100% all the way data, which I'm like, I'm totally on board with that as I, I just mentioned like a couple minutes ago, but at the same time, just finding the balance to understand actually when uh, diff different avenues of information come into play and yeah. when, when you should be trusting those as well. I think that balance probably changes contextually mm -hmm. with your business and how many yeah. users you have and all that too. Yeah, one thing about um, like 100% data all the way, like I think this is a pitfall that people don't think about too much um, which is you do that and you start to take out the human side of it in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So you start using data so much that you forget to solve for your customer, mm -hmm. right? Activation rates and conversion rates and lifetime value and all these things, like they're not customers. Those aren't people, you know what I mean? You're not focusing necessarily on the right stuff sometimes if you're optimizing for these things that seem to make sense from a UX standpoint, like, I want to increase activation rate. Great, you know, how do you do that? Well, you deliver a great user experience. Okay, great. But then your solutions start to feel a little more not customer driven, mm -hmm. right? Things like, um, you know, we, or like they, they skip a step perhaps. You know, you do something because it'll increase activation rate. But activation rate is like a thing you made up, right? So like, why are they activating is really the question you should be answering, not will this activate, will mm -hmm. this cause people to activate And do more. they get something out of activating? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And like trying to keep looking at it and it's almost like you need to stop using the, the special lingo in order to just look at it from like a regular perspective sometimes because it's easy to get caught up in that jargon. And then you kind of forget like what the whole point was, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so sometimes I like to step out, and that's also why I, I try not to use it when I'm having conversations with people that I don't, um, that I, I don't like do this kind of work with regularly, just, just because I know that it's actually not important. Mm -hmm. Like can, you can say conversion rate, but what is that? You know, like, what are we actually talking about here? And like, let's, let's define those things as early as possible. Um, and that's something that I've been trying my best to focus on this year and I've been learning has become more and more valuable, especially when you're running experiments because you have to think through like, will this actually do what I want it to do? And then as a result, we'll increase these metrics, right? Mm -hmm. um, Speaking on having conversations with people, a really interesting thing that I've noticed over the past year is just like how many people are aware of experiments and growth and growth process at this point. Like two years ago, like at, at least around the Boston area, this stuff was just kind of like unheard of. Like I was very new to it. Mm -hmm. Like before I joined HubSpot, I had a very vague idea of what experiments were based on like biology class in high school and like some A-B tests that we went over in marketing class and in college and stuff like that. But now like walking around inbound and just, um, just talking with other people from companies in the area, a lot of people are starting to do this stuff. And not only that, but 
growth and experiments is getting a lot more respect and the respect that it deserves. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, I remember when everyone started to learn, like, about growth hacking and it was just, like, emphasis on the hacking part because yeah. it was just, like, <laughs> pseudoscience, which is, like, what they talked about in the Design Machines article. And that's, like, mm-hmm. still a large perception that's out there. But now the people that are really in the weeds doing this stuff and running real experiments and understand the process, like, there's a lot more of them popping up and they're proving in whatever companies and ecosystems that they're in that this is not hacking. This is a rigid science. Mm-hmm. I mean, to an extent. Yeah. Like, yeah. if we're being honest. But, like, but it, it's, it's, it's uh, the, I think that the growth industry is growing, which is mm-hmm. good. Yeah. It's good or else it, the name doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's, I guess it's not really an industry, right? Like, at the key. Like, the, the yeah. key of that, it's like, it's a culture. It's a, it's a movement. Yep. It's definitely, we're not making any money off of these, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I it, it's like an evolution of where know. the web needs to go, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because it's just like, uh, you can only go so far based on what you think should happen. At a certain point, you need to run real tests where you're, the way that I think about experiments is just like, you're putting a survey question out there uh, like a poll, but you're not making it. You're not making your users aware that there is a poll. They're answering the survey with just using your product and right. just clicking around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like um, what are going uh, going on a, uh, a wildlife reservation and then just putting things out there and then leaving and mm-hmm. adding video cameras. You know, <laughs> if that animal sees you. <laughs> What are you talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Matt gets it. Matt and I work at... We have desks right next to each other. He gets it. He gets it. That That is a great but you know, analogy, actually. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's like... it's. I guess the difference, though, is... Why, you know, I'm not even going to dwell on it's this. Not, it's, not, it's, not qu- it's not quantified, but it's like the same concept of like the one-way mirror, you know? <laughs> Dear listener, <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Do I make any sense? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to write a wiki post about this and see what other people say. I'd be like, is this not a good analogy? And it's very short. So another thing that I learned this year, um, which I think is a common theme at HubSpot, Mm -hmm. and this is more related to culture and the way that we work, is the idea of taking formalities and kicking them to the curb. Like, all of the bullshit... Hashtag, I wrote an article about this. You did? No, you did. Oh, I did? I did write an article. Well, well. Well, Austin, every time you learn something, writes an article. Which is really convenient for this episode, because you can just look back and be like, what did I write about this Let's just make this very clear. Austin is not just, like, selling all of his articles in this episode. (laughs) He learned it first, and it's interesting, and he just happens to always write an article about it. Oh, God. This this particular article... I'm expecting, uh, like, a book pitch at the end of this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. This, this particular article was, uh, it was written by a guy from UXPIN, and I just interviewed for it. But basically, I was talking about, yeah, kicking formalities to the curb, where, like, you think about um, the, 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 the ways that we work and all of the classic, like, formalities that, that have been associated with work and the, the way that it just completely destroys productivity and quality of life. Um, it's something that I wasn't com- really aware of at all until I came to HubSpot and I started working in this environment because I grew up with this perception that, you know, work is work and that's not necessarily supposed to be fun or enjoyable. It's supposed to pay the bills. And then you use that money that you gain from that, however much it may be, to live your life and, and that's what you enjoy. And here I've, I've seen 
that that entire concept get completely obliterated because uh, I I am able to work in an environment that is relaxed that that doesn't force you to act a certain way or to talk a certain way or or you know I mean obviously there's like general general workplace guidelines and everything like yeah. that but but it allows you to to be yourself and and actually to work in a way where you can channel your passion um, so so when I come to work I'm I'm not worried about writing a super formal email or about you know being there at a specific time or, or dressing a certain way instead I can just come to work and immediately get into flow like I would and that's that's like a technical term that I'm using <laughs> Yeah. Believe it or not, I can. It's um, not just like him adjusting his hair in the morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can. Not I can uh, immediately get into flow and in doing that which I love, uh, and and that in turn makes me much happier and much more productive. So, as I've continued to work at HubSpot and I've absorbed this culture, which is something that if you're not familiar with the HubSpot culture and this general like sort of tech culture movement that is happening, uh, go to culturecode.com and you can you can check out our culture code. It's been viewed by over a million people and it basically just describes what the culture is like here. Um, I'm also going to be writing a, a retrospective article on my first year at HubSpot and how like the culture oh, cool. has shaped the way that I think. Um, if you don't name drop both of us, yeah. <laughs> no, that's yeah. You guys are already in the you're in the draft. So a really so. cool part of like the cultural side of it that mm. relates back to like actionable growth advice is something I've noticed is that our culture actually seeps into all of our marketing and our messaging yeah. and our products. Mm -hmm. Ooh, and that mm -hmm. is actually very effective. Yeah, like some of the things that I've observed is that you know the less formal our emails are in our email campaigns throughout our onboarding flows and drip campaigns, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, the less formal we are and if it comes from an actual person who works here, who mm -hmm. will respond to the email if you respond to it, uh, the better the conversion rate, the better yeah. the open rate, the better the everything. Well, and even like using GIFs of like cats yeah. and things yeah. in onboarding. It's like people like GIFs. that stuff. GIFs. Is it GIFs or GIFs? GIFs. I, I, it's 50-50. Out of the yeah. scope of this podcast, it could yeah. take the whole rest of the episode. E but, email yeah. us and tell us if it's GIFs or GIFs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But the, who who would have who would have thought that treating humans, mm -hmm. whether they be employees or potential customers, treating humans like humans is effective? Wow, what a groundbreaking yep. idea, you know. But that's that's seriously what's happening here is that yeah. we're bringing we're introducing the the human element into the workplace, and as a result of it, I see myself just as a couple examples valuing remote work mm -hmm. so highly, where I I care much less about where a person is physically located, and well, they need to be here because because that's how we do it. We're here, you know, and uh, I care much more about um, what environment makes them most productive and where they're going to be the happiest. Um, you know, it's a cool example of this. Have you see, have you seen like? some of the posted images of like people's chats with like Netflix support in uh -huh. contrast to like people's chats with like Comcast or something like uh -huh. that. Yeah. And it's like someone's talking to Comcast and they're just like so official about it. Like, hello, sir. Like, how are you this evening? Mm -hmm. How can I help you? And they're just like, I'm so upset. And then the chats with Netflix, it's like, hey, man, what's up? I saw you watch SpongeBob the other night. <laughs> you know, like, I recommend like this thing did from Sponge or whatever. I almost said, did SpongeBob reach out? Did Netflix reach out <laughs> at first? Did they make the first No, no the, the guy like reached okay. out to him. Because that would be amazing support. if you were watching something else and you was like boop boop and he's like hey man i just noticed you watched spongebob last yeah. night and you're just like 
I did watch SpongeBob. <laughs> That's amazing. It's a great or like start to the a first like Netflix drip campaign emails written by hand. Yeah. <laughs> that would be. They don't do it yet, but yeah. Netflix, if you do decide to do that, talk to me first. <laughs> <laughs> but but like yeah, like you're saying, who would have thought? You should be human mm-hmm. and fun on the web mm-hmm. and in your apps. Like yeah. people are using your products, and they don't want your product to be another rigid uh, process or another yeah. rigid part of their work, like writing mm-hmm. a formal essay, mm-hmm. you know? Just say what you gotta say and say it the way that you would say it to a friend. Yeah. I, I also see myself like, th- like when I, when I evaluate designers now, the, the way that I evaluate them is completely changed, where like instead of looking, this is something that we've discussed in previous episodes, but instead of looking at education or credentials, I'm much more concerned with their experience or what they can actually bring to the table or if they would be somebody that's like enjoyable to work with. And I think that the key takeaway is that go, like going into 2016, more and more and more I will be taking and I encourage everybody in the industry to take a look at like what we consider design to be and you know quote the way that design is done or for that matter the way that work is done Mm -hmm. and question it put it to the test and if you're really interested in the way that that HubSpot does things um, you can yeah take a look at the retrospective article that I'm gonna put up I'll put a link in the description but also again go to culturecode.com and Google uh, R-O-W-E the results only work environment there are entire books on this stuff and basically what like in a nutshell what it says is that we're going to create an environment that is completely focused on making people happy and getting results like results results only right and the way that we get results and the way that people work and everything like that they're going to determine as a part of the culture and uh basically what it what it's saying is like nine to five suit and tie formalities and everything like that that's not what gets you results that's that's actually a barrier to results and that if you just purely focus on results and what's going to drive the business forward which surprisingly enough especially in an industry where talent is in such high demand employee happiness is an extremely integral part of retaining employees and and in turn getting results that's why we use the employee net promoter score at hubspot every every manager is is held accountable with a net promoter score to ensure that their team is happy um, and to ensure that there's not employee churn Uh, so I really believe in this stuff. Uh, it's it's changed my life. This has been the best year of my life, and I attribute a lot of it to to working here and to knowing Ooh. people like you guys and everything yeah. like that. Uh, and it's changed the way that I view work, and I'll never I'll never work another way again. Um, so that sounds like I drank the Kool Aid. But yeah, right. Yeah, yeah you know what I'm afraid of is like there's an asterisk at the end of that, which is like effectively I'm unemployable anywhere else. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're just like no, I no. refuse to work anywhere else ever. Yeah, no, th- that's not the case though. There's um there's a lot of companies that are adopting this right. um, it's like because the, the it's effective. It's it's actually like endless amounts of companies adopting it every day. And what the the way that I see it is like especially from I like I, I went to Brazil five times this last year, right? And South America is just the the cult, the work culture in South America is like as different as it can possibly be from um, 
the, the from North America and, and namely the United States and especially the tech industry in the United States to the point where this last time that I was there, um, my fiance, her cousin, she has a PhD and she works at a, a very high profile company in Brazil. And she was going for a promotion where she wanted to like take on more responsibility, manage more people. Um, and the way that it works there is that everything is done based off of a standardized test. That's literally how you get promoted, oh, geez. That's so is weird. you take a standardized test, uh, which is so foreign to me. Um, but anyway, so Besides she... Besides the fact that it's another country. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is the culture, right? So, uh, and, and I respect it, of course, but I just want to, like, lay this out as a bit of a case study. So, and then I'll shut up. Um, so she, she took the standardized test, which she studied for. There's, like, guide that you study for these tests and everything like that. Um, so I don't know how that actually measures any level of competency whatsoever. But anyway, she took this thing and she, like, aced it. And then she gets a, an email that says, hey, uh, you did awesome on the test but you're, you're not, you're, you haven't been accepted and you've been effectively failed because what happened was she listed her PhD under her education. She like listed her PhD, but she didn't list the masters and the undergrad that preceded that. So because she didn't list those two pieces of education, she, she didn't get credit for that. And thus she was thrown out of the test and the ability to get promoted. Now, does that sound anything like how we effectively promote people at, wow. at HubSpot, right? It just that sounds is so, like the entire public education system yeah, in the United States. It's, it's, it's effectively like a continuation of the public education system. Yeah. And so that's that's a that's a very different way to work. And, and I've been working with a lot of designers in, in Brazil specifically. Um, there, there are a lot of companies that are that are actually adopting the frameworks that are being used in, in Silicon Valley and here in Boston and New York and everything like that. And what they're doing is they're just completely murdering the markets down there because they're recruiting the best talent. People don't want to work like that. It's 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 very formal. It's very stressful. Um, and, and I bet she wants to go somewhere else after getting denied for that. Yeah, She's yeah. probably pissed about it. Yeah. So so a lot of these designers, they're they're going to, to companies like Huge, for example, which is just doing excellent in, in Brazil right now. What are they called? Huge? Huge. It's an agency. Yeah. Sure. Um, and and so I've been I've been talking to to a lot of people there. Just on a side note, I love agency names. Yeah, They're always yeah. so ridiculous. Well, I just yeah. thought you were gonna be like huge. Who, by the way, is just doing huge. Right? Like I thought you were gonna make some. Anyway, I don't know. That man, I just kind of like started laughing to ourselves a minute. <laughs> That's why I asked for the correction. I wasn't sure. But I I, I see this. I, the the reason I see so many companies adopting this work philosophy is because it represents an incredible advantage. Right. You're, you have a more productive environment, a happier environment, and you're going to recruit better talent and ship more shit, right? Uh, and, and so that's why I advocate for this so much is because that's why I really want people to put their formalities aside and not be stuck in their old ways and say, oh, well, this is this is a way that you know my professor told me it's it's done, so that's the way that we're gonna do it or something like that. Uh, and, and, and look beyond that and, and optimize for what's actually going to make people happiest and is going to, to be the most effective. And don't just assume like at your current company, if it's nothing like this, that that can't change. Yeah. You know, like be the, be the one that introduces the change. Mm -hmm. You know, talk to everyone that you work with and say like, this is how I want to be working. Do you guys feel this way too? 
Speaking about change, let's let's change the subject. Yeah, you know uh, we're gonna change the subject uh, to so. not having a podcast episode anymore because we we've been running on for a little bit, and I think this might be a good time to wrap it up. Ooh, real real quickly though, I, this is uh, interesting. It's just on my mind because we're right after the holidays, yep. and one of the learnings that we've had running experiments uh, over the past couple of years is that we can't run experiments over holiday seasons mm. because usage volume is gonna tank, mm. and usage itself and user behavior is gonna be incredibly erratic. People will not be using mm-hmm. your product the way that they normally would in a work week. So you just can't trust the results. However, what we've done instead, since we know this in advance, because we ran experiments last year and we're like, oh God, this is telling us all the wrong things, what's happening? Um, so what we did instead this year is we ran very basic survey questions for thing, like high level things that we wanna know that probably won't change over the holidays. So things like users signing up, we surveyed them, we said, how many people work at your company? Like that's data that we'd want to know. Or since we work specifically on a CRM product, we asked, have you ever used a previous CRM before? Yes or no? And we actually learned some really interesting stuff about our users coming in based on those survey questions that we're going to iterate on. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of actionable feedback for you guys. Next holiday season, don't run experiments, come up with a plan B and still utilize the time and the volume that you have. Yeah. That's super important. We did run a retention, test or we were like measuring for retention right after and realized that yep. we couldn't because it fell right into the holiday season yeah. so like of if anything this is also a learning which is like don't do it <laughs> yeah we, we, we ran it, an experiment it, like that ended the week like a couple days before uh like christmas yeah and we're like all right this is an, a retention experiment and we ended the experiment and after you end a retention experiment the next couple weeks is the are the weeks that you measure as the cohorts like mature right. and we realize, oh, they're going to be maturing over the holidays and they're not going to be working. So we're going to count them as not retaining. Right. Whoops. And so <laughs> we, we lost a bunch of, we, we lost data because of that, because we can't trust it now. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was too bad, but, um, I think that that's a great rule to follow. Um, yeah, let's wrap it up right here though. I uh, don't want to keep you guys too long from all the other podcasts and things that you've got to be doing with your time. Um, so if you wanted to share anything that you learned, uh, over the last year, um, or you have any questions, or you want us to talk more about the certain things, or if you want to just argue with us straight up on some things that we say, yeah, or that. if you want to send us gift cards, uh, gift for cards things. are nice. <laughs> gift cards are great. Late Christmas presents, anything mm-hmm. of that sort. Um, feel free to send us a message. Uh, we have an email address. It's hello at uxandgrowth.com. Um, it goes straight to one of our inboxes, and somebody will take care of it. We've been kind of trading off, and uh, we love talking to you guys. So. Um, Feel free to, to catch up with us. Uh, we're certainly looking forward to it. Uh, thank you very much. Have a great rest of your day.